In this edition of the Futures of Work podcast, Harry Pitt sat down with Lynn Pettinger to discuss her new book, What's Wrong With Work, published by Bristol University Press. Harry kicked off the conversation by asking why this book and why now? It was a couple of years ago and I was um, I was in the pub with a couple of academic mates and we were talking about potential projects together and I said, oh, I've got this title, um, What's Wrong With Work? And um, I was thinking we could do maybe some kind of edited collection that pulls together some um, people doing interesting stuff around ethics and politics of work at the moment. And... Even though, even though I offered also to buy pickled eggs, they said to me then, this just sounds like not something I want to be involved in, both of them. And they put it a little bit more bluntly than that. But I always thought that the idea was a really good one, a really important one. Um, We think about contemporary time as a time where work is really changing. And I've been a sociologist of work since I did my PhD, um, which was uh, many years ago now, let's say, 15 if my maths is about right and um, it was for the first time in a long time that questions around work seem to be of importance to sociology again and it's because they've re, uh, re-emerged in the world as something really important to think about and a lot of the driver for this is the driver for of technological change um, that is change that's going to reduce the number of jobs that we've got that's going to re- involve machines substituting for human labour and some questions around what the effects of that might be and I'd also been thinking about issues around environmental change Um, about five years ago I was having a chat with a a journalist friend who was saying Lynn there's a strike on at Vestas and I said what and he said Vestas is at the factory that makes um, wind turbines who's doing work on this and I honestly couldn't think of anything. And so I started having a little look at where um, who was doing work on environment and environment in relation to work. And I didn't find very much at all. There's some really interesting research into um, the trade union response to greening, but not very much other sociology of work. So those twin interests in technology and in environment struck me as really important angles to a question about what's wrong with work, to the ethics and politics of work. And I guess the bubble of the idea um, started started around then. And I began thinking about some of the, the longer trajectory of my own work and my own interests um, quite early on with um, colleagues Rebecca Taylor, Jane Parry and Miriam Bluxman. I did an edited collection called A New Sociology of Work, which was really an argument about drawing more attention to the domestic and thinking about unpaid work, voluntary work as work, thinking about work not just in terms of the employment relationship. So that's um, the kind of ideas I've been thinking with. And then in just as a matter of luck, um, one of the editors of a new series um, with the um, British Sociological Association and Policy Press wrote to me and said, would you do something on the gig economy? And I really didn't want to write about the gig economy per se, because I think one of the problems with the study of work is when we extract specific kinds of work and put them up to the light and make them brand new um, and make them like that they're the change that we need to pay attention to my feeling is when you get something new you have to think what's it a version of and what does it rely on and so I started to form the ideas of the book from that the kind of entry point of the book into debates about contemporary work is through an ethical lens really and, and that's you, you kind of begin by outlining um, 
difficult, different ethical ideas about what makes good and bad work and, and kind of navigate a path through that. Um, kind of in, in an age of claims about bullshit jobs and um, kind of, um, I guess, productivist claims about certain, about hierarchies of, of work that's more productive or less productive and the groups that go with that, for instance, what, what kind of path do you steer then through, through these claims about what makes good and bad work? Right. Well, I think there's, I mean, in addition to the, the bullshit jobs idea, which is thesis I'm not especially convinced by, there's obviously a really long history of thinking about questions around the ethics of work and of the politics of work and the overlap between those two things. And um, I think Russell Muirhead's book, Just Work, is a really interesting um, version of that, which I find a little deeper to ask questions around um, meaningfulness around work. And as I was writing um, the book and I was doing all this reading around ethics, around care ethics and um, the dignity at work stuff, which again, I think is um, really rich and is really a productive way to think about work. But none of them quite worked for me because ultimately I got the feeling that the idea of having a list of good jobs or bad jobs or a list of things that made it for a good job and made for a bad job created some kind of like kind of mistaken understanding that you could assess and measure and define a good job or a bad job that straightforwardly and um, because I think if it was possible to do that then we would have way much better work way we'd have way better work than we have at the moment and um, and again I was also doing some reading more abstract reading about questions of ethics and um, I'd done some feminist reading around care ethics and I was thinking about, well, if we think about the ethics of work in relation to care ethics, then we might be attending to, you know, relationality between people, how people look after and care for each other. And work, both paid and unpaid work, is absolutely central to the idea that we might be looking after the other or other people. But even that, even that like greater kind of sense of sitting um, sitting with people and um, doing something good didn't quite work for me and I found just a really short piece by um, Didier Fassin about ethics and about his attempt to think with the idea of ethics in relation to um, his work on uh, policing in, um, in France and to his work on humanitarian organisations and he had this idea which just kept like battering itself against my head which I just found a really nice phrase that the best way to think about ethics is to think about it in relation to what he calls the worthless rock that surrounds it that the right way to think about the ethics of work is not to abstract out of an understanding of work the list of what's good or what's bad but it's to understand that there are dimensions of something that's good or bad that exist in and amongst all kinds of other kind of social relations so there are compensations at work for example and it's just not that straightforward to say here is good work and here is bad work um, and that relates to a broader theme I think of something that I think I can see the problem with but I've never quite worked out what I think about a problem with 
how desirable it is when you're an academic to rush from an identification of a problem and perhaps a critique of the problem to say what you're going to do with it. So I'm not entirely comfortable with many of the ideas, say, around dignity at work or some of the uh, kind of other judgments you mentioned, bullshit jobs. But saying you're not quite comfortable and saying what should be aren't the same process at all. And um, this is kind of like a broader uncertainty in how I think and how I kind of reason both in the book and more generally. I think there's a real pressure to come up with quick answers. So you say, here's what's wrong with the world. And then your final chapter should be, here are the things that we can solve and this is what we're going to do about it. And I guess what I've been thinking about is thinking that actually I want to ask different questions to see what they generate from myself but also from other people rather than say is the question we should is sorry is the question we should be asking what's a good job and what's a bad job because I'm not sure that that's the right question to ask I think um the process of thinking through what the, my trouble is with that question leads me to feel like I don't have quick answers and actually to suggest we should be wary of anyone who says they can go from academic work and critique to quick answers because I don't think it's viable because I think you end up generating all this attention to complexity and mess in the world but then reducing it again into something simple and I think like I said at the start of your question the start of my answer to your question if it was simple it would be sorted by now but this is inherently a really messy complicated thing to think with so it's necessary to kind of stay with the trouble that's in, a great phrase for it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, actually, that brings me to another question, um, which is about the concept of um, solutionism, which yeah. take over from Evgeny Morozov, um, which is this kind of, you know, the, the proposal of solutions to problems that we never knew uh, we had, which kind of have a performative effect of cr creating problems around that, and in a way, solutionism being itself a kind of problem um, uh, as well. Um, what do you think is the power of this type of, you know, instead of staying with the trouble, instead of getting in the midst of, of contradictions and paradoxes and problems and all this mess of the desire to always be proposing that there's a way out or, or, or the necessity to always have a way out um, for the negative moment, to have an affirmative moment that always automatically follows it. What do you think is the power of this in the contemporary world? I mean, with reference to work and, and environment and technology, the different aspects you look at, it kind of the thread that runs through the book is a critique of solutionism, I guess. But I think that's true. And um, Morozov is an interesting figure, like a kind of quite wealthy tech commentator. And it's not standard in academic work to borrow concepts from tech commentators. But the work the kind of critique he develops of how, specifically how Silicon Valley operates, is, I think, really persuasive. He's got these great examples of, well, I'm paraphrasing, I think these are my words, not his words, I should be clear on that, the kind of stupidity of some tech bro solutions to social problems. So one of the um, interesting things, or the interesting ideas that solutionism gives me is sorry, one of the interesting ways to um, think with the idea of solutionism is to think about the way that um, complicated social problems 
can get reframed in relation solely to the thing that they're going that's going to solve them so solutionism is a way to get to really quick to the quick to the chase it's a way to find um the answer to a problem but it only answers the problem that's been defined as an answerable problem and so every time you see some new app that finds a way to track your menstrual cycle, um, tell you how much B vitamins you've consumed today or whatever it might be, you're finding a technological solution to a problem which actually there are many other ways of solving it. And those are kind of small examples that um, I come up with. But in the world of work and employment, they're really quite often bigger kinds of um, suggestions as to what technology might be able to achieve. So if you've got a problem with what some businesses might call employee engagement and your employees just aren't working very hard, it's a productivity problem. Well, the solution um, might be if you talk to a software company is make them enjoy work more. And how would they do that? Make work more like a game, make it like a video game, make it a competition. And so here we've got this long intractable problem, which is a problem about social status, hierarchy, what work feels like for people, whether people want to work. And it can be solved just like that with the application of um, a new bit of software. So make it into a game. And I think those quick fixes um, are, well, they often have really short term effects, don't they? Because we do like learn languages on Duolingo and start searching for the crowns and you can transfer that into the workplace. But they don't really attract, really engage with the deeper question about, well, what does generate a problem with what the software companies are calling employee engagement? Often in academia now we talk, you know, there's these kind of challenges or, or you know, there's a, always a problem-solving aspect that, that, that is kind of recommended as, as an approach. Um, the, the idea of a challenge is the idea that it can be overcome and, you know, mm. these kind of grand challenges and, um, you know, the uh, industrial strategy challenge fund or the productivity challenge yeah. gives an idea that instead of them, these things being irreconcilable potentially irreconcilable contradictions yeah that that you know that that there's a possibility of them being overcome and this i guess plays out in another theme in the book around the, the environment and the you know the climate emergency and the ecological crisis mm-hmm. um and the recommendation of technology as a, as a solution to that um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relevance of the environment as a thread running through the book but also, you know, relate that back to this idea about solutionism. Yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, it's really interesting to think about um, answering that question right now, because when I was writing the book, even if it was just 18 months ago, there was no sign of Extinction Rebellion being reported in the media. We were thinking about, I was thinking about environment as a time of crisis, and many other people were, but there wasn't that kind of public uh, conversation about it. And some of that is because... Whereas um, when you talk about the future of work in relation to technology, it's very shiny and exciting. Um, Climate change happens seemingly at a quite slow pace. Actually, it happens quite quickly, but it seems slow because the effects take a long time to work. And this is something that Rob Nitson talks about in relation to the slow violence of environmental change. Incremental shifts in the seasonality of crop growing or something like that that have a really strong effect building up over time on people's life and livelihood 
And so if you're going to think about what work should be like, then you have to situate that in the present moment, a moment of climate change and climate um, catastrophe, and think about what solutions um, there might be, as well as thinking about, or rather, what different kinds of ways of addressing climate crisis might have what impacts they might have on work so um a couple of things come to my mind and one is your your point about linking it to the solutionism of technology that there is a sense in which um some of the geoscientists are making these kinds of solutionist claims promising climate energy engineering um promising that modifying um seed crops will make um um, food production more straightforward, promising that we can put um, just a new enzyme into the soil and it will um, it will um, produce more food um, and so on. And I think those kinds of claims are really, really limited. And the reason I think they're limited is that um, they assume that um, there is a straightforward solution and that the proper application of science and expertise is the only way to achieve that. And I think one of the effects of that is to generate promises that won't necessarily be kept. A second effect is to participate in a more general and more fundamental um, ignorance, absence and silence about ordinary everyday lives in formal work. So how do you work on a farm if the um, w- winter was too warm for the rats to die off? What transformation of both work but also life and livelihood is involved there? And it's not so straightforward to say there can be a techno fix for that. And it takes me to something that is um, is a theme in the book that um, emerges like my answer to your question about not being able to answer questions straightforwardly, I took from the philosopher Isabel Stengers, who asked us to think quite differently about the trust we place in experts um, and to think differently about the way ex- or technocratic experts in particular make claims to find solutions um, to problems that they've constructed as solvable, I think. So one of the, uh, one of the slogans of Extinction Rebellion uh, or something that was displayed at least on one placard was when hope dies, action begins. Mm. And in there, it's quite a provocative idea about you know about I guess optimism and pessimism or mm-hmm. whichever way you want to kind of spin it, and about the possibilities of 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 action. And one of the points of criticism that you come back to in the book uh, about different. I guess ways of framing the world is the hopelessness that's induced by a, a, a great big monolithic kind of term like neoliberalism, mm-hmm. for instance, or, or even capitalism. Although maybe I'm a bit more defensive about that term. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, yeah. I'll let you have that. <laughs> neoliberalism, one. yeah, whatever. Yeah. But I, I guess I, I think that concept of hope as something like denied or, or negated, or something realisable, yeah. and, and the question of alternatives therein. How do you create a non-solutionistic approach to trying to find a way out okay um i mean i think a critical reader will find that i absolutely copped out of doing that in the book and it's kind of interesting to hear hear my book re-described as um as the theme around hopelessness being the thing that that dominates and i think it's probably fair but just one of those things that when you're 
you're distant from something you don't quite see it in the way that you think it um you you don't you no longer see it in the way that other people see it um but one of the things i think about in relation to your question about when hope dies action begins um is a slightly different version of that because i'm really a fan of um the feminist geographers jk gibson graham who talk quite a lot about already existing alternatives and one of the reasons why I wouldn't want to say here is neoliberalism and this is what it has done to the whole world is to find the spaces of already existing res- resistance or already existing alternatives and to think about magnifying those, about amplifying those um, those versions. Um, so that to put it a different way and using um, a different kind of theoretical language within capitalism which appears very readily as a monolith as a beast that can't be tamed as something that we're just servants to that already exists dissident vectors already exists forms of change alternatives forms of hope and I think it's really easy to become the critic who finds everything wrong with every possible alternative and just says that won't work or that's just a sop that just makes capitalism just gives it more power it just reproduces it because it's in those moments and those spaces of difference already existing difference that transformations change transformations come about or are made possible so I think that there's a strong role for um, making more public these already existing new ways or alternate ways of doing things. And I shouldn't have said new ways because I don't think they're new. Very often they're very old ways. They're about communities helping each other out. They're about collective forms of activity. I guess this also brings into play the kind of horizon of of, of the future, of what, of what like a kind of hope is addressed to. And in a way, a kind of solutionism gives us a feel gives us the feeling maybe of a lot of agency actually about being able to sculpt the world mm-hmm. but the wrong kind of agency I guess in a way because it's not the agency you just described of real existing alternatives but it pitches it off into the kind of what you would say is a prom- promissory kind of idea of the future or something it does but then I also think that work makes the world and so some of the transformations in the world are like, they're present in the day-to-day. Work makes the world. So in the decisions that we make in our everyday working lives, we, we do ethical things and we also do political things and they may be designed to you know, make the world better in some way, whether that's a small encounter between um, customer and um, service worker, whether it's a bigger question about how a manager decides on the way he's going or she's going to be behave towards their staff whether it's a decision that a software engineer makes when they design some new technology to pay attention to the what the nurses or doctors when they're making healthcare technologies tell them about what is needed rather than assume they know better so that the thing that they make becomes better in the book I give the example about repairing a um a road that's been damaged because of the um, freezing and melting of um, rainwater and talk about how like the, the way you do work, you do work well, you do it badly or you do it the best of your possible ability given the constraints. But that has a real effect on the future um, of that thing that you've repaired. And so you can see like these really kind of ordinary instances of um, the ethics around work as really po- powerful, I think. You said work makes the world. You know, that mm. there's something. I, I guess in what it'd be great if you could expand a little bit more on what you mean by that, because you know, are you talking about uh, 
metabolism with nature because the specific way that you conceptualize the way that you understand human and non-human and the relationship between the two in the age of the anthropocene anthropocene and and the, the kind of hidden i guess or or implicit theoretical influence of new materialisms in the way you understand that. yeah what do you mean when you say that work makes the world yeah so what i think i'm getting at is that um Human actors are significant, but not the only actors who make certain things possible and preclude other kinds of things. So I've talked about the example of farming earlier on. And if you're a farmer, you're growing some crops, but um, the rats are a real problem. Then we've got multiple actors there affecting the kind of work that you do so that's you the rats it's the soil the crops but it's also the um, infrastructures that you're working around it's state regulations and state policies it's the pesticides that you are and are not allowed to do I think I say that work makes the world because I think that um, we shouldn't take the world for granted and say it's given by some other kind of being or creature um, because then we have the idea of markets and as the only as the source of um kind of a point of origin source if you take capitalism as a given and you say that this is the structure that we're dealing with let's live with it or live against it then you're accepting that there is no action in the world that makes capitalism look the way it does right now Mm. so that makes it really hard for it to change and it makes it really hard for it to be different but the economic system that we're operating with now this is actively constructed it's constructed every time we teach our undergraduates about how supply and demand works but that's not a that's not a true model sorry that's not a truth that's a model of the world but we start to take it for granted and then see ourselves reflected in it the ideas that you can take from um, new materialities and sts invite us to recognize the constructedness of those um, kinds of phenomena to see them as constructed both by humans, but also by a range of technologies and other materials. So as in the case of the farmer who has crops, rain, and um, his tractor, and all those kinds of things, that we understand those things as as interwoven. But is there something about humans specifically that means that work, in this world-making sense, is something specific to us? Um... So I'm not sure it's specific to us because, um, but this takes me way out of the themes of the book, but no, but that's great because this is something I really want to think about. Um, How does a forest grow and reproduce when no human goes near it? It does that really, really well. One of the things that might might get be involved in that is the labour of um, beavers. And maybe it's too much to say the labour of fungi, fungi. Fungis. Fungus. <laughs> Fung- uh, yeah, we say fungi, not funguses. Fungi. That would be yeah. a strange thing to say. I'm not sure that we could call that le- labour in a way that makes... In- so I take your point about the distinction between human activity and non-human activity. But then all kinds of things happen in the world which don't have human agency to them, but which nonetheless are productive of something. So mm. growing things is the most obvious mm. example of that. Mm. Um, and... 
So can you understand agricultural work unless you also pay attention to what the soil does and what the weather does and what the wind does? And can you understand the persistence of a woods unless you see it as something which is constantly being remade? So um, Henry Ford of the Fordist production line tried to apply his Fordist production systems to rubber plantations and did these long, long, straight rows of trees, um, perfect kind of squares. And of course, the trees don't want that. Trees don't like to be turned into straight lines. Trees want the complexity and the messiness of a fallen log where it gives a possibility for other things to dwell mm. and other things to work as like beavers work to cut down and rearrange logs there. Um, kind of quite active in those kinds of things woodpeckers work um, you know and it's not work in the sense of a here's where I do sound like a hippie I think but like it's something like productive in the world that changes the shape of the world mm. and I know that means that work is everywhere but actually something I think that's kind of useful to think with for a while well maybe I'm betraying my Marxist kind of baggage but the I guess a human conceives and executes in a way that allegedly, of course, we're told that mm -hmm. the bee doesn't, for instance. Mm -hmm. But then science does seem to suggest there is elements of cognition in animal life that we yeah. recognise as being a conceive of something and then do it rather than just do it as a matter of instinct. Yeah, there's suggestions that um, trees have communicative structures between each other so that when one um, senses that there's some kind of predator around, the others can realise and can generate the... Um, effectively antibody to that predator mm. that we just don't understand a lot of how the na natural world happens so we have this easy assumption that we are dominant of it so the world is made by work or work makes the world but we're also sold on the idea that work can somehow be eliminated or, or replaced but of course that's not playing upon the same understanding of work because no, it, no. It's, it's, but work as an activity could be eliminated by machine so that this is a preferable state of affairs yeah yeah so that's about the elimination of paid work yeah. and what that does is eliminate all the elements of work as obligation work as exploitation because you would only then do something that you chose to do and there's a long history of um, people hoping for the end of um, paid work and I can give you some references to Russian futurist poetry which is really really fantastic um, about that from like 1919 and that kind of thing um, and some of the discussion about the workless future is I think problematic for reasons that we've already talked about because it assumes that technology can solve the problem of human drudgery and that technology can provide a good substitute. But some of the problem, I think, is that when we talk about work after paid employment, we neglect some of those kinds of work that we haven't yet talked about, which I think are really important. We neglect the idea of care work, of cleaning up dirty bodies, of caring for sick people, that those are not the kinds of work um, that will disappear, I don't think, because that, that's not what the machine is going to deal with. And in fact, there's a really significant social question about whether it's desirable to remove human relations from those caring kind of relationships. The experiments with robot carers in Japanese old people's homes um, are notwithstanding. I think that there are kind of a number of reasons to think that those forms of work won't disappear. And what do we know about who does those forms of work right now? They're more likely to be female. They're more likely, if they're doing paid work, to be poor. They're more likely to be um, from minority ethnic groups, perhaps from migrant groups or um, something like that. So 
those forms of work, if they are invisible to people imagining a post-work future, then I don't want to sign up to those post-work future kind of arguments because those forms of work are drudgery with compensations, I think, but still unpleasant drudgery. So what happens to those and who does those? It would be nice if that kind of work was shared differently. Mm. And while that brings us on to the topic of informality, which, again, is a, is a major theme of the book, and you approach it in a specific way using this theorization of knots and mesh work um, with the other uh, uh, themes running through the book. I, could you speak a little about how, uh, how, how you conceive of informality and its centrality to, to how you understand work? Sure. Um, so the early people studying work were troubled by the nature of industrial society, of the growing factories. And that was, you look at that kind of work and you understand why they'd be troubled about it. This was unpleasant, dirty, degrading, exploitative work for very, very low wages. But when they set that up as the key problem, I think perhaps they forgot about all the work that in your Marxist tradition gets called social reproduction, about what that was like. And some of that kind of work is done in rather informal ways. So it's done as a favour. And then there's a whole scope of other kinds of informal activity which are not part of the formal economy. The fact that a spectrum between formal and informal might be worth thinking about. So these are people doing piecework at home, for example, little bits of manufacture at home, market sellers, independent traders. This is the kind of work that is most dominant throughout the world. This is the biggest kind of work. But because it's um, not so readily visible, perhaps, than uh, paid work in a factory might be, it's really easy not to think about it. And if you don't think about it, then you don't think about its specificity. So some of its specificity is um, its very, very deep precariousness, like its condition of precariousness as its very foundation. Some of its specificity is around um, the individualisation that it engenders. So it's really hard to have a trade union of informal market sellers when actually they don't live anywhere near each other, they're in competition with each other, that it's not really clear what um, a better conditions of work would be because it's such a contingent way to make a living. And sometimes it's the case that attempts to formalise this kind of work actually reduces people's capacity to be independent, their sense of autonomy. Um, and you see that sometimes in um, um, understandings of waste picking, when waste picking goes to be something from that people can just like go and do and it's disgusting and unpleasant and they wouldn't choose to do it, but they have a freedom and autonomy to make them do it. If private companies then come and buy the waste and then turn it into wage labour, that you can come and pick the waste from the private company. That's a really different set of employment relations. And even though formalisation sounds like it should be better, in that instance it really isn't. It's really much worse because then you're vulnerable to that wage labour relationship. Um, so the question of informality is um, a really important one, I think. And it, it's part of trying to think about studying work by thinking about the interconnections within the world between different forms of work. So um, the work of branders and marketers selling pretty dresses or whatever it might be is connected to, much earlier on the supply chain, someone who's directly invisible to them in that 
can you be directly invisible? You really can't, can you? Because if it's direct, you're not invisible. Nice dialectical concept. Thank you. (laughs) Someone who's kind of like absent from awareness of the supply chain because branded garment retailers put a lot of effort into not acknowledging the damage of their supply chain. So trying to say, well, we only use good suppliers, but we know from extensive research into supply chains that at the very informalised ends of it, so often women working in small groups or in their own homes to do bits of sewing for piecework, that these are people whose life and livelihood is really contingent on how the branded organisation has negotiated its contracts in order to be able to, for for that organisation's point of view, to sell stuff cheaply and therefore not to pay too much in wages. So the informal economy is really a significant part of that formal setting. And by, I mean, you mentioned earlier that initially you you were approached to write a book about the economy, but but you had reservations about, about that yeah. um you know how how does centering informality instead of it being like an add-on or you know a kind of optional extra or something that is exceptional to the world of work, yeah but placing it at the center of our analyses allow us to approach the claims of novelty attached to things like the gig economy today yeah i mean i think it's really important and it's about recognizing the geographical specificity of what seems to be new as well as its historical specificity and I think it's recognizing that it's really helpful to understand a phenomenon that looks like looks like it's new by thinking both about what is this an echo of what does it feel like and what's different about it one of the things I think about some of the people interested in the gig economy at the moment are, let me say that section again, that one of the things that often seems to bubble up to me when I'm hearing about the gig economy is that some of the researchers... Inter- now, again, I'm going to be really judgmental. I don't want to do that. Yeah, it's, um, it's more the, the, the ways of talking about it. The way, it? Yes, yeah. yeah. So one of the things that kind of troubles me about some of the ways of talking about the gig economy is the discovery of it as something new... When actually I think what's distinctive is that something that newly affects young, white, middle-class men looking for bits of jobs. So a lot of the research that I see into something like Deliveroo, it's people noticing shit jobs because they've got a shit job and their mates have got a shit job. And they're not really studying care workers who've been working on those contracts and on worse contracts for years and years and years who are also at the mercy of what their uh, the app on their phone tells them to be doing and how they need to be moving on to their next client. I don't think some of the problems with the gig economy are confined to those kinds of service jobs which seem to be in public view much more than the hidden work of care work, for example. Um, so you've said rightly that you shouldn't have to just because you're criticizing the world and it's the way it represents itself in thought have to then propose an alternative to that as a as a kind of second moment and that's sufficient to stay to stay with the mess and the complexity of that but i mean in terms of some of the alternatives on offer at the moment one of the ones that responds to a lot of the things that you you mentioned um, would be stuff around green jobs or or the green the, the proposed Green New Deal that comes out of the left in, in the UK and, and the US at the moment. Um, I mean, what do you make of those 
kind of proposals that we could all have a if we all had green jobs we could keep the work but then also green the planet at the same time yeah i mean i think it's really good to have aspirations to think about how to how to reorganize the way economies run and how work operates slightly differently and of those proposals around green new deal i think the just transition ideas that produced by the ITUC are the the most interesting because they pay the most attention to something that is often neglected in European policy circles and certainly in the US. Um, And that's if you're going to have an economy based on high skilled, great green jobs, which are going to serve the triple triple win, it's called in EU terms, of environmental um, amelioration, economic success and social um, good social outcomes, then you're living in a slightly fantasy world where you're forgetting the other kinds of work that those high skilled green jobs rely on. So let's imagine something like retrofitting a building so that it's more environmentally initiative. You might want some solar panels. Um, have you thought about where the solar panels come from? They're based, uh, they rely on raw materials which are really scarce, which are extracted under environmentally damaging conditions and where in several cases they involve the use of child labour. So what is your Green New Deal if it doesn't pay attention to the dirty, dangerous and demanding work that happens elsewhere? It's not enough to say we'll have it here and that we'll just assume that somewhere else can produce these raw materials for us because that's nothing be- no, nothing better, is it? 